Pause with me again. Father, you are amazing. Thank you for this opportunity again to speak from your word, to share your word. Really, I have nothing to say, but your people are here, and they've come to hear you, to worship you. So now, Lord, I ask that you will speak through this hollow vessel, conduit, to your people, as you have spoken to me in this passage that I wish to share this evening. Lord, be glorified, be seen, be heard, be felt, for your own and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I was tempted to sing, and some people smiling, but I'm even looking up, because I don't sing well under light. But I think that there's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. Thank you, Brother Anthon, for choice of music for this evening. I want to share with you this evening, and I'm going to speak to you about an entire chapter, so please put on your seatbelt. I'm going to cover the entire chapter in fast order, so you have to listen quickly. But I just want to speak to you about the, what I refer to as the excellency of brotherly love and unity. The excellency of brotherly love and unity. Now, of course, you may wish to know where that long chapter is. Well, if you turn in your Bibles, you will find it in the middle of the Bible. And while you're looking for it, let me ask you this question. Have you ever heard someone say that they can't remember something? No. Uh-huh. Do you think anybody has ever forgotten their own name? Yes, it's Dan. I hear an amen. Okay. Um, do you think anyone has ever forgotten the letters of the alphabet? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever heard someone praying out loud what we call the Lord's Prayer, and then they pause in the middle because they forgot what comes next? Or somebody was saying they're two times table, and of course we have memorized some of these things from Yehi by rote learning because we have been conditioned to say it, and we're not necessarily paying attention. But research has shown that there are basically five memory paths, or lanes, highways, if you please, in terms of how we remember certain things. Now, some people choose or have preferences as to which highway they choose. I guess it's like traveling from one point to the next. Some people have preferred lanes or paths to take. But there are some people, for example, who are very good at memorizing people's name. Do we have anybody like that? You introduce them once to a name, and those people say, that's all I need, I will never forget it. Do we have anybody like that? No, you're scared, you think I'm going to throw the name at you, are you? You chicken, you? No? No? Do we have some people who have this memory, you give them a number, a telephone number, say it once, they repeat it, or somehow they file it in their head, and they'll never forget it. How many of you know what your license plate on your car starts with? Some people know all the, all the numbers, and I think there are eight. <laughs> yeah, millions of cars in the province, right? 
Some people are very good at that. Those persons have what we call semantics, a memory path. There are some people who only remember certain things based on an event. If you're in a certain place, if you go to this place, and then you say, ah, now I remember. Have you ever walked from some place in your house and you were going to get something and you forgot? And you had to return back to the point of origin? <laughs> and you say, let me start this over. Let me go back. Where, where, where? And then you were there. And then once you get to that point, ah, now I remember what I was. Then you started your journey again. Yes? That's episodic. All right? You need an episode that points to a location when the event took place. And so you decide to go there. What about those persons who have procedural pathway? There needs to be a certain procedure. If you break the procedure, you get thrown right out. You say, I don't remember anything. Start over. I get very distracted. I'm a more, in terms of my learning style, my preference, my dominant learning style is auditory. I need to hear. I choose hearing as opposed to seeing. Seeing could distract me. So I would probably close my eyes so I can only hear the words and then file it that way. There are some people who prefer not to do it that way. They need to see it. And so most of those people who you see are very prolific note-takers when somebody is writing or they're in a certain setting. They're writing down everything because they're not sure they're going to remember that again, so they put it down on paper so they can see it again and review it. That's a different kind. What about those persons who say, uh, let me call it automatic path? That's for those persons, for example, who their body has been so conditioned to doing a certain routine, they can do it and not pay attention to it. You, say, ah, you just watch them. It's almost like somebody playing the piano, or play, making the piano talk like somebody did this morning over here, like Dawn. How does she do it? How does her finger, how, how could someone have such intelligent fingers to know where to go and work in coordination with all those other muscle, muscles in the arm, in the fingers, and in the, in the hand, not in the fingers? How many of you ever tried to do something that your body haven't done for a long time, and your body tells you, don't try that? Yeah. That muscle say, well, you, but you do, and you, we don't do that. We don't touch our toe, not like that. They say, stop right here, you know. That's, that's, but I said, don't, don't try that. I'm not familiar with that. There are different parts. We have, but there's one more that we call emotional pathway. They're the ones that are most powerful. If you were ever, if you said, how do you remember? Some people could remember some things that has happened a very long time ago. Because around that event, there was an emotional attachment. It could be very sad, one extreme, or it can be extremely happy and joyful. But you remember but that's the most powerful form or path, dominant path. And so if you could, if your intention is to force someone to remember something long-term, try to create an emotion around it. Now, some of those could be very unpleasant, but then again, if you become too emotional, that can dominate the rest of the, the path. And sometimes you might act in a way that is illogical. Some people might say you are hysterical. So if this person's not thinking straight, because that dominant emotion is controlling all factors. How do you describe, for example, something that you want someone to look at who may not immediately be paying attention, but you want them to look at it because you think it is something that is worthy to look at? As a matter of fact, you want them to pay close attention. This is, it can be seen, of course, but it is seldom seen, but you want them to look at it nonetheless, and so you want them to inspect it. It is worthy 
of admiration, you want him to pause. I want you to really gaze at this. It, it, it almost charms you, and you want them to look at it so that they could even imitate what is happening. What, what one word can you come up with that can describe that when you want someone to look at something that is worthy to be looked at? You come up with a word? You just say, boy, look. Or you, if you could reach them, you touch them, you shake them. In the Bible, they use another word. Behold. Behold, you'll find me in Psalm 133. First word, that long chapter, Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That's one third of the chapter. It is like precious oil upon the head that runs down to your beard, even Aaron's beard down to the hem of his garment or skirt. It is like the dew of Hermon that descended upon the mountains of Zion. It is there that God commanded the blessing, even life everlasting or eternal life. That's the entire chapter. Now, just before I say the benediction, let me be pedantic. Let me be picky with this, this chapter. Behold, God looks on it with approval and therefore consider it, and he wants us to pay close attention to it. David here in Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Behold. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. No one can tell the exceeding excellence of such condition. And so the psalmist used the words how twice. Behold how good and how pleasant. It does not attempt to measure either the good or the pleasure, but invites us to Behold it, to behold it ourselves. The combination of the two adjectives, good and pleasant, is more remarkable than looking at two stars, two brilliant stars side by side. Or in these, for, for a thing to be good is one thing, it's very good. But it is also, to be, for it to be pleasant, it is even better. I have it on sound authority that all human beings, especially Bohemians, love good things, yea, even pleasurable things. But I believe that it is often far too frequently that this pleasure is usually of the evil bent. But here in this text, the condition is as good as it is pleasant, and it is as pleasant as it is good, for the same how is set before each of these words, good and pleasant, and therefore it qualifies both words. For how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I'm sure you can think of instances where you've seen that, maybe in your own family. 
and you saw brothers and sisters getting along so beautifully, and you are delighted, and you thank God for that. I am also sure that if not personally, you would have seen it in some media form or movie, where you would have seen brethren, brothers and sisters, family members not getting along as they should. There was disunity. For brethren according to the flesh, to dwell together is not always, not always wise. For experience teaches us that they are better sometimes a little apart. Do you, do you remember the story in, in the Old Testament with Abraham and his nephew? Yeah. Um, they did not, well, of course, you know, Abraham's crew, and then you had um, his nephew, Lot, and they were having little skirmishes, little fight over different issues, and it was decided, look, this is causing too much problem. We, we need to separate. And so, of course, you know, Abraham asked him, well, you choose. And we know how that story ended. But sometimes, even family, flesh, do not get along well. And so maybe sometimes it's best to have some parting. Do you remember also the story of um, Joseph and his brothers? Yes? Now, of course, those brothers, there was tension. There was disunity among the siblings. So much so that they wanted to get rid of their brother Joseph. And one, at least some members of his family, wanted to, at least his siblings, wanted to go to the extreme of even killing him. Of course, there was somebody else there, another brother that spoke up, let's not, let's not do that. Let's just put him in this well, this hole. Later on, of course, it was decided to sell him off. So sometimes siblings don't even get together when we talk about siblings of the flesh. But when brethren or family can and do dwell together in unity, then it is a communion worthy to be gazed upon and to be sung of as some would have done. Such sights ought often to be seen among those who are near of kin, for they are family, they are brethren, and therefore should be united in heart and aim. They dwell together, and it is for their mutual benefit and comfort. There should not be any strife, and yet we know that there are many families who are rent apart by fierce feuds and arguments and exhibit a spectacle which is neither good nor pleasant. During the summer, I went to a funeral, and uh, there were two rows of pews, and um, it was clear that there was tension in the family. One part of the family was seated over here, uh, the other over here. The coffin with its contents was in the middle. And it was at this point in the service that the pastor was preaching. There was a lady who came in the same pew. I happened to sit about four seats back from one side. And she, sat, she came in. She came in talking rather late. But she was grumbling about something. She squeezed past me. She sat two, per, well, two persons away to my right. And she was talking because at this point now, the, she didn't sing whatever they sang. And, but now the preacher who was doing the eulogy was at the pulpit. And he was doing his thing. 
and the lady who was two spaces away from me was doing her thing. Of course, she did not like what the pastor was saying, nor did she like the other person who was sitting on front row, hard left, my left, and this gentleman who was on the end, who did not have any visible hair on his head, um, she was commenting on that as well. And so she was saying, and she was not, this was not soft. She was normal volume. Pastor speaking, he says, what are you saying over there? Now, I, I'm trying to touch, so let's look and say, please, man, let me get you here. I told you I'm auditory, so any other distracting sound sort of irritates me. But she was not paying attention, you know, of course, she was just saying, and if the pastor said something about, oh, how this person took care of this lady, mm, he was a good, and she says, liar. Right? Just, just like that, you know. It, it, you don't want to look to cause a disturbance, you know, so you look straight ahead. At one point, I was so distracted, I started counting all the rafters in the church, because I looked straight up my redemption drawer at night. But she was, and to the point that she eventually got up, because every time the pastor said something, she answered. She said, look at him. And then when she wasn't talking about him, she was talking to the man who was sitting to the end of the pew, who was, of course, motionless, looking very surreal. But she said, lie, good for nothing. And she got up, she walked around to the front, went to the family, uh, I think the children, some of the children who were on this side, and she went and she says to the... the um, Family, she, the pastor was speaking now, so she came front right down to go back out. She just simply says, um, she said, child, I'm sorry, and she's not whispering, like, you know, the little church to call. She just says, I, I can't take this, I can't take this, you know, but I, I go in here, I can see you later. And she walked out, and then she turned around and looked at the pastor, because this is crazy, this is, I cannot take this. And she walks straight down. The pastor did not break stride. He paused a little bit. That could have been a time to say, let us pray. But he proceeded with his message. It was clear that there was some intense conflict, disunity between this family. Because, by the way, the one who was most vocal beside her, there were the other person who was just shaking her head and saying, that's right, that's right. So she was being encouraged, you know, but this one was the more outspoken one. But that shouldn't be but that was the reality there. There's a different kind of family here. What Sam is talking about and saying, but look at how, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. On the physical level, we just have seen and just briefly mentioned how that is sometimes, sometimes experience teaches us that that might not sometimes be the best. We need to separate just so that we may maintain peace. But in the body of Christ, the spiritual family, they ought to be, we ought to dwell together in close church fellowship. In that fellowship, one essential matter is unity. That is essential. It is non-negotiable. We don't have an option. There must be unity. We can dispense with uniformity in the, if we possess unity. We don't have to look around and, and see whether or not we we look alike or whether or not we sound alike or whether we speak alike or dress alike, that is not necessary. We don't even need to have the same low-paying job to, to get together to have unity. We need not live in the same street or same general community or even in the same state or country. 
But what is essential is that we must demonstrate unity. Indeed, we will have this oneness of life and truth and way if we remember who it is that makes us one, and that is Jesus Christ himself. We must then be one in our object and in our spirit. These, must, these we must have, or our assembly, when we gather like this, will just be a fast. As a matter of fact, it will just be a sin, a gog of contention, rather than the church or the body of Christ. And so the closer the unity, the better it is, for the more of the good and the more of the pleasant there will be. But let's be real this evening. Let's be real. Since we are imperfect beings, somewhat of the evil and the unpleasant are sure to intrude from time to time. But this will quickly, I believe, and readily disappear and be neutralized and easily ejected by the true love of the saints or the family for one another. So one way to get rid of disunity is to genuinely love one another. If love is missing, then we open the door for disunity. And according to our text, that is nothing, there's nothing good or pleasant about it. Christian unity is good in itself. It's good for ourselves. It is good for the brethren. It is good for the new convert. It is good for the outside world. And for certain, it is pleasant. For a loving heart must have pleasure and give pleasure in associating with others of like nature. A church that is united for years in earnest service of the Lord is a well of goodness and joy to all those who dwell round about it. But let's look back here at the text. Verse 2 says, and trying to find a simile for it in terms of saying, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Then he went on to find a simile and he says, It is like, it is like the precious oil upon the head. In order that we may better understand this brotherly unity, David uses semantic language and gives us the resemblance so that us in a glass that we might perceive the blessedness of this. It says that this is it's like it has a sweet perfume about it, comparable to the precious ointment with which the high priest was anointed in his ordination. It is a holy thing to dwell together in unity. And this oil, it is like oil on the head, precious oil. So that makes it holy. It's a holy thing. And it is like a sweet perfume. This ointment was, of course, a composition made up by divine dispensary. In other words, God himself was the apothecary. He is the one that told you what the ingredients were to make this particular oil. You cannot find this in Kelly's or the perfume bar or John Bull, Walmart, Macy's, where you get your sweet smelling oil from. You won't find it. That this one was divinely made, and it was for a special occasion. God himself appointed the ingredients and the quantities that were to be used. And so thus, believers are taught of God to love one another so that unity might exist in the body of Christ. It was a very precious. It was indeed very precious and like it, and the like to it was not to be made for any common use. And thus, 
it was holy. It was holy love in the sight of our God. And it cost at a cost that was of great price, but very precious indeed. What a sacred thing this must be, this brotherly love that God is expecting of us to live. But you know this. Have you forgotten? Do you which path did you not find? So when someone says that I, I don't remember, you do remember. Maybe when you say I don't remember, you mean you don't remember which path you took. Did I tell you about the path I was trying to uh, I develop a new pathway to get home, so sometimes the traffic, so I go south, cut across uh, Stapleton, and either coming from an event to cheer or some meeting in the night, and I've been doing this for a part, and I don't know, at some point when I got through Stapleton once, uh, and we talk about procedure, remembering certain procedures, you just keep going, and then you turn, and then you say, then I turn left, almost instinctively then turn right, until I get back out on the highway. Well, something happened, and I didn't remember which, but I should go right or left when I come to T junction. And so I went to the wrong turn, whether it was right or left, I don't recall. Whether it was in the spirit or the spirit was, I don't know. But I made the wrong turn, so I ended back to a roundabout that I, I just been here. So I decided, no, nah, I can't be running around in Stapleton getting lost. I, when I got to the roundabout, I'm going back to the other procedure that I was accustomed to, and they're going to come back. But boy, was I challenged. I determined the next day I'm going back to that corner because nobody's going to lose me like that in Stapleton. So I'm going back when I had daylight. But of course, you know, in the Bahamas, we have this thing about street signs. They're not supposed to be along. We normally take them down, you know. And so in the night, you don't see them to begin with. And so I decided I'm going to come in the day. But what did I do? What's, why did I make a wrong turn? I figured it out in the day, but I couldn't figure out when I, how do I get here? I didn't see any signs to say, this is the sign I'm looking for. None of the, I didn't have the privilege of seeing any of that. But that's because I have gotten used to this going procedurally, this is turn left, turn right, and something I got, I've missed one turn and you got thrown right off track. What we do in terms of saying, you know we're supposed to love one another. You know that. The difference is, do we practice that? Does the person next to us, the person who we fellowship in this fellowship, do we do that? No, why not? Well, you really don't have a legitimate excuse because we have been commanded to love one another. Again, take the visual picture that David is using here. It then talks about this being a wonderfully, a great thing. That this unity that God looks at and he says, behold, everybody look at this. God says this, when you look at this, this, this brotherly love, this unity dwelling together in, in love and unity, it is something worthy to be looked upon because it's so uncommon. But when we experience it, what a joy. It is here, the scripture tells us, that God commanded a blessing. It commands a blessing. When we live together in love and brotherly love and unity, God's blessing is present because God commands his blessing there. And even life eternal. That's wonderful. And he gives this, this uh, picture for us here about the, the, the oil on the head. And, and I take this literally and then figuratively and figure out what's going on. It flows from the head. So in a sense, this unity must be seen among the leaders of our fellowship. We need to be demonstrating the love for one another and then let it flow down. And I guess for it to get to the hem, what you may consider the person who may be doing the least, maybe invisible person within the body. 
down to the hem of his garment. It means that it has to come, this fragrance must pass over your body, pass over your heart, must pass over your heart, and then to the rest of the body. But everybody is involved. And think about it, it just flows naturally down. Oil does not flow up. It is from the head down. That's a wonderful thing. It is very energetic, and it's doing so as it goes. Gravity pulls it down, and it creates this wonderful concord. It has a special use about it. For as by the anointing of the oil, Aaron was set apart for the special service of Jehovah. Even so, those who dwell in love are the better fitted to glorify God in the church. The Lord is not like, likely to use for his glory those who are devoid of love. They lack the anointing needed and this love needful to make them priests unto God that run down upon the bed, even Aaron's bed. This is a chief point of comparison, that as the oil did not remain confined to the place where it is first felt, but flowed down the high priest's hair and bed and to his bed, even so brotherly love descends from the head, distills and descends, anointing as it runs down and perfuming all with its lights and aroma that went down to the skirts of his garment, once set in motion, it would not cease flowing. That's what we need to accelerate. Once set in motion, it accelerates. So let's demonstrate that by how we interact one with another. Brotherly love. It says this, Is the man a believer in Christ? Then he is of one body, and I must yield to him an abiding love. That's all that's necessary. Is he a believer? I am commanded to love him. Is he one of the poorest in our midst, one of the least spiritual, one of the least lovable? Doesn't matter. Then he is maybe the skirt of the garment, and my heart's love must fall even upon him. Brotherly love comes from the head, but falls to the feet. Its path is always downward. It's run down. And it went down, love for the brethren descends to men of low estate. It is not puffed up, but it is lowly and meek. This is so small, this is no small part of what I call the excellence of brotherly love. Oil would not anoint if it did not flow down. Neither would brotherly love diffuse its blessing if it did not descend. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountain of Zion, and from the loftier mountains, the moisture appears to be wafted or fanned and floated to the lesser hills. The dew of Hermon falls on Zion. The alpines of Lebanon administers to the minor elevations of the city of David. And so does brotherly love descends from higher to lower, refreshing and enlivening in its course. Holy concord, holy unity is the dew, the mysteriously blessed full of life and growth for all plans of grace. It brings with it so much benediction, so much blessing, that it is as no common dew, but as that of Hermon, which is specially abundant or copious, plentiful, and far-reaching. The proper rendering as is, as the dew of Hermon that descended upon the mountains of Zion. And this complements the figure or the simile which has been already used. And sets forth the second simile, the sweet descending diffusiveness of brotherly unity. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, 
even life forevermore. That is, in Zion, or better still, in the place where brotherly love abounds to proof of excellency of brotherly love, loving people are blessed people. I need to repeat that. Loving people are blessed people. They are blessed of God and therefore blessed indeed. Where love reigns, God reigns. Where love reigns, God reigns. God is love. Where love wishes blessing, there God commands the blessing. God has but to command, and it is done. He is so pleased to see his dear children happy in one another that he fails not to make them happy in himself. He gives especially his best blessing of eternal life, for love is life. And so, dwelling together in love, we have begun the enjoyment of eternity. And there shall not be taken from us. Let us therefore love forevermore, and we shall live forevermore. This makes Christian brotherhood or brotherhood so good and is so pleasant. It has Jehovah's blessing resting upon it, and it cannot be otherwise than sacred, like the precious ointment, and the heavenly like the dew of Hermon. I like Matthew Henry's commentary uh, when he says, and I agree, we can never say too much how very important it is to persuade people to live together in peace and unity. It is good for us, for our honor, our comfort. It brings constant delight. It is profitable. It is pleasing. It brings blessing. It cools the scorching heat of man's passion. It moistens the heart and makes it fit to receive the good seed of the word. Oh, for more of those rare virtues, not the love which comes and goes, but that which dwells, not that spirit which separates and secludes, but that which dwells together, not that mind which is, of, which is all for debate and difference, but that which dwells together in unity. Never, never shall we know the full power of the anointing oil of the unity till we are of one heart and of one spirit. Never will the sacred dew of the spirit descend on all in its fullness, till we are perfectly joined together in the same mind. Never will the covenanted and the commanded blessing come forth from the Lord our God, till once again we shall have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. To live together in peace, love, concord, and mutual agreement, not only in occasional meetings, but all through the course of our lives, is indeed a great blessing and is very pleasing to our Heavenly Father. Those that live in love and peace shall have the God of love and peace with them now and forever. That's the blessing of all blessing, to have the God of love forever and ever. Behold then, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Our Lord, our God, lead us into this most precious spiritual unity. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who loved us so much that he gave himself for us. Lord, convict us 
torment us so that we might love one another as you have commanded us to do. Let us not give the enemy a foothold by causing or allowing disunity to exist between brother and brother, brother to sister, sister to sister. Lord, we ask these things because we want to honor you. We want to obey you in all things. Yes, we say again, Lord, we look, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For where there is love, there you are, O Lord. And so we invite you into our lives. Cause this to be our experience. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You are to go out and love one another. The excellency of brotherly love and unity. Amen.